Alright, I'm gonna need some help. Somebody needs to explain this mindset to me. I went on MGO blog, wanted to read a recap of the South Carolina game because I missed it. We were playing in Jerusalem. Missed the entire game. So I want to see what happened, you know, talk about it on the podcast. And after I read through it, I immediately go to the comments section because it's the most fun thing to do, far and away. One of the first comments I see is this, quote, Matthew seems to be stuck, kind of, but I'm sure Johnny will get it out of him once conference play resumes, end quote. So you're telling me if Matthew starts hitting those gorgeous floating jumpers that I could watch all day, dude just hangs in the air for days. I mean, I don't care if he makes it or misses it, it's pretty as hell. But if he starts hitting those, going one-on-one, like they tend to give him the ball and kind of look at him and make some plays on the perimeter, shooting mid-range jumpers. He start hitting those. That's that's beeline. Now don't get me wrong, coaches can help with the mental side of the game, but he's not a puppet master pulling strings, working Matthew's arm to shoot that jumper. Beeline can get him going. He can run him sets. Off ball, uses athleticism, maybe gets some alley-oops, some good looks at the rim with some systematic plays. Yeah, fine, all right, I'll give him credit for that if, if he if he makes it a point early on to run through Matthews, trying to get him some good looks early because he knows he's important to the offense. All right, fine, I'll give him credit. But if Matthews is going to start playing one-on-one and hitting those shots that he's just been missing, why, why do we give the coaches credit in college? It's always in college. They get damn near all of the credit especially with player development and like when a guy comes out of nowhere or he like turns around his game why can't we give the player that credit Beeline gets a lot of credit for developing underrated prospects and he finds guys that he likes guys with certain mindsets and personalities that play above where they're projected in high school and, and I'll give him all the credit in the world for recruiting. But he's not hes not playing the game for them. Okay, when, when Stauskas and Levert are in the summer working their asses off every day in the gym for hours, why, I mean, why do we give Beeline that credit? And this isn't just about Beeline. This is about all college coaches. Why do we give them the majority of the credit? And then we turn around the NBA where there's just as much player development and nothing. They don't get the credit. It's all the players. There is a heavy balance there. But overall, college players, they don't get enough credit for their performance. Now the top guys, you know, Zion, R.J. Barrett, those Duke guys, certain top scorers that people just know are going to be top scorers or player of the year or potential player of the year All-Americans. Yeah, okay, those guys get the credit. It's most of the time when guys are under the radar or improving and immediately has to be tied back to the coach. Like that player put in a lot of hard work. It's funny too because I was watching the Purdue game. Actually, I got home after practice and turned it on when they had scored 31 points in the first 10 minutes. Then I watched in the next 24 minutes, they scored 31 points and their offense was stagnant. Purdue went to a switching defense 
forced a lot of one-on-one play from Michigan. Guys were just kind of looking at each other like, are you going to play one-on-one? No, here's the ball. Okay, are you going to play one-on-one? Okay, pass. Are you going to play one-on-one? And in the system, and with those guys who like to share the ball, who aren't overly selfish, you need some selfishness in basketball, but they aren't overly selfish to an issue. So are we not going to give any blame to the coaching staff for the 31 points in those 24 minutes, or is that all on the players too? Because they're just looking at each other out there. They're not, they're not moving. There wasn't too many adjustments going on for, the, for many possessions in a row where the offense was stagnant. So where does that lie? So when that happens, and you're on a ball screen and they switch, okay, you got a, you got a Simpson-Teske ball screen. You got a big on Simpson, a guard on Teske. Teske's not going to post up. And Simpson has the ball. And the guys are looking at him like, hey, you got a mismatch. You can beat this guy to the rim. But that's not Simpson's mindset. He can get to the rim, and he does effectively a lot of times. But his his he's not always looking to play one-on-one like that. He's not always looking for a mismatch and looking for his own to get to the basket. You know, he's very much trying to run the system because that is what has been nailed into his head from the day he got on campus. From the day he got on campus, he learned, run the offense. Learn the system, run the offense. You know, five on zero, B-line's got people sprinting to places, all right? You have to make crisp passes. You have to have the right pivot foot. You have to have the right energy, okay? Or you'll do it over again. He'll make you repeat it. So that's just been ingrained in your head. Now it's different. You got a guy like Trey. All we did was run ball screens. And I mean, his, his mindset was completely different. We catered to him. But Xavier wasn't quite like that the first day on campus. They weren't expecting to give him the ball and just go. So you have, there's different ways in which Beeline treats his players offensively. There's guys like that, like Trey and, and Tim, who get the leeway when I was there because he's expecting them to score and carry a heavy load offensively. So they get a little more leeway with mistakes and breaking the offense or just simply catering the offense to them completely because with Trey, I mean, good luck guarding with a ball screen with him. With a guy like Xavier, you know, he's looked at to run the system for other players, but he's running ball screens still. So when, when Purdue switches, it's a tough place for Michigan to be. They have to keep moving. And it was stagnant. It was funny because watching Xavier attack in that Purdue game, and he, he shorted some layups. And he has the ability to finish those layups. But it was him just kind of getting there, and then mentally there's like freezing. His arm just like tightened up. And then I watched the Northwestern highlights, and this dude's shooting sweeping hook shots like he's been doing that his entire career. I mean, I haven't seen a, a guard shoot a shot like that in a long time. I was like Steve Nash-esque. Of course, the one I'm thinking of was Steve Nash was his left hand right over a seven-foot Dirk. A little different, but nonetheless, Xavier's shots like that are impressive as hell. I have no doubt that Michigan will have answers for, for one-on-one or for switching defenses. Like I, I don't doubt that. The coaching staff's too good. I'll be honest. I wasn't able to watch the last two games. So I don't know what switching defense was going on or what kind of defensive strategy Northwestern or South Carolina were employing, but this is something they're going to have to look into. And I'd be surprised if more teams don't 
copy that style. Teams are going to try and make Xavier beat them. So are you going to keep running ball screens? Or are you going to get better movement off the ball? Last thing I'm going to nitpick is their bench. I saw the South Carolina box score. Livers played 25 off the bench. Brooks played 6 and Davis played 4. I want to see Davis just get a few more minutes. I know there's a next couple of games, three games, that are non-conference coming up. They should win. You know, why can't those guys get more minutes in a game where you basically control it? The answer is the business is winning games. We talk about in college all the time about development and like that's like a huge part of college basketball perception-wise. But the business is winning games. If the coach doesn't think you can help him win games, then you're basically useless to him. You're worthless to him during the season. That shit sucks. It's very hard to overcome. Davis isn't going to be spectacular in those four minutes, but he's being judged from the first second he steps on that court. Being judged more than any other player, frankly, I think, the rest of the team. What happens if Teske gets in foul trouble, Livers gets in foul trouble? We all know Beeline's hard rule, 2,000 the first half, you're out. What happens then? You're going to need Davis. You're going to need more than just a body. Right now, I know Beeline's mindset. He's playing him for me. He's like, listen, I just need a body out there. Just throw a big guy out there. Doesn't matter if he gets it or not. Plays well. I just need him to run spot minutes, get some rest. But he doesn't trust him, obviously. That's blatant. He knows it. And that's in his head playing the entire time as well, making him worse. It's a very tough situation. You have to think about it from his perspective. He knows now that the amount of games they've played, he's not going to get a lot of minutes. But he wants more minutes. So what's he doing? He's putting pressure on himself to get more minutes. Putting pressure on himself to make plays. And his head is scrambled, right? Some guys can come in and don't right off the bench. They can be sitting there for 20 minutes, come in and play well. Doesn't matter. Most guys need to get into a rhythm of the game. All right, touch the ball a little bit, get a sweat up and down, mentally settle in, get calm. Then you can play and get the most out of that guy. But just to give Davis three minutes to be like, oh, he just got a charge on him. Take him out, he's worthless. I mean, what you expect him to, to prove to you something within three minutes each game? That's not what's going to happen. Next time, watch a starter, okay? Watch a starter start out with first bad three or four minutes. You have a different perception about that guy. You're like, okay, well, you know, we need him. He'll, he'll turn around, keep him in. Let him work through it. Bench guys don't get that leash. And it's very difficult mentally to overcome at times. So when we shit talk those guys, it's not completely fair. Because it's a completely different place they're coming from than guys that they know beeline trust, which are the starters, which are the major minutes guys. Perception is reality with coaches at all levels. And I had I've had my I had my issues with Beeline with perceptions. It's not easy to overcome those perceptions. That's why you're not going to crack the rotation 
midseason. You know, myself personally, I, I had, I think it was my junior year, won't name names, but it was somebody employed by the University of Michigan with the team, I'll say that. You know, somebody I trusted, was venting my frustrations to about Beeline. And he looked me straight in my eyes and he said, listen, I don't think Beeline is ever going to look at you as a leader. I was like, shit. Yeah, you're probably right. Even though I felt like a leader, I was a leader of that team. Right? He didn't see how I talked to guys outside the court, in the locker room. He didn't even see everything on the court. But it was the sooner I accepted that and I could move past it, the better off I was mentally. That stuff was freeing. It's like, all right, why am I going to move an unmovable rock? What's the point? But it's very difficult to get past that as a teenager. I mean, some of these guys are still teenagers, okay? And they're working with a head coach that recruited them, okay? And then, and then he doesn't play you, because, and you know he doesn't think you're good enough. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But how he perceives you is reality, and that's very difficult to deal with. In a situation like Davis's, I mean, it's it's next to impossible. So we rip him. I've seen people rip him all the time, saying he can't play, he hasn't developed. I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. All I know is that the position he's in right now is I, I do not envy. It's one of the most difficult positions to be in on any team, regardless of who the coach is. Please just don't kill this guy for not playing super well under these circumstances, all right? It's not easy. Again, put yourself in their position. Have a smidgen of empathy while you're watching sports. I know that's basically sacrilegious when it comes to watching sports, but just try. All right, let's lighten this thing up. Let's go to some Twitter question. This one comes from Nick Smith, friend of the podcast, my best question asker so far. He wants to know, what is a question you got in an interview in college that you wish you could have told the truth? Now, if you've read enough quotes, listened to enough quotes from athletes and coaches, you could tell it's basically bullshit, most of it. You can parse out certain frustrations and genuine feelings, but you can't really take it what they say at face value, especially at the college level. Right, they coached us at Michigan on how to speak to the media. I did not say anything that would inflame controversy or create more questions. Okay, don't tell the truth. All right, give give the corporate answer. All right. There are times you get the question like, "How does this loss affect your outlook?" And I give some cliche answer. You know, it's a long season. We just need to look at the film and try to get better. And even though it was cliche, and I repeated it over and over again, that's exactly how I felt. I had no idea how to take that one game and view the rest of the season with it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the questions that players and coaches get praised for. They're blatant bullshit. All right? For instance, I would get asked my junior year specifically about coming off the bench. I wasn't starting. Smotchers was starting, basically. And Novak, I think, was starting at the, at the two. 
Beeline didn't want to do that. Right? You want to put Novak at the four, put me at the two, and Evan coming off the bench. But he didn't think Evan could handle that coming off the bench. All right? So they always ask me how I felt about it, how I felt about coming off the bench. And actually, my, my buddy Nick looked this up, uh, and the answer's still on YouTube somehow. I don't know who kept it up. Some two-answer, two-minute video. And I answered it with something to the effect of, whatever helps the team, it actually helps me because I can get a better feel for what is going on in the game after I get in. And that's true. I, I mean, I could... I always use those like four minutes to observe what was going on and adjust something in my strategy if I needed to against who I knew I was going to be guarding. But that wasn't the truth. The truth was, yeah, it doesn't matter because I know I'm coming in after the before the first media timeout probably and then I'm going to play the rest of the game and coach trusts me more than the guy I'm coming in for so it doesn't really matter if I start or not. You can't, you can't say that, but that's the truth. So you can tell, I guess I told the half-truth. I wouldn't say I blatantly lied, but I told the half-truth, and then, you know, it looks good for me and for the team. You know, I'm a team player. I'm taking it, using it to my advantage when the full truth is something that nobody really wants to talk about. The media would have loved it. I mean, that would have been a great quote, basically saying one of my teammates sucks and Beeline doesn't trust him, but... You don't really want to go that far. You know, I don't. I don't want any of that backlash from a, from an answer like that. My senior year, I started to get a little more bold. There was one time I was like super honest in an interview. We were going to play Northwestern on the road, and we had a short media session before we left. And they asked me about the arena. In fact, I think it was Mark Snyder. Shout out, Mark. He always had great questions and great snark. You know, he's not, you're not covering Michigan anymore, but he still has plenty of time to give me shit on Twitter, and I couldn't appreciate it more. So thank you, Mark. Keep it up. But he asked me about the crowd and what to expect, and I told him exactly how I honestly felt. I said it completely matter-of-fact. I said, basically, the crowd is nothing. I'm not worried about it. The kids study in the stands before the game, and, you know, it's not a hostile environment. A lot of Michigan fans ended up going, and, you know, I'm not really worried about it. Something like that. Well, they didn't like that. And they were, because I said it, like I wasn't even trying to say it to be cocky. Like I didn't even come off like that. It was just very matter of fact, like, yeah, they, that crowd sucks. And nobody denied it. Nobody came after the fact that the crowd was great. They just said that I was a punk. I think I saw some things on Twitter. Maybe somebody wrote an article or put a quote in there. But they, just, they ended up just attacking me for it, which is, you know, a sign that I was right. And I was it was funny because I was really feeling myself that game. And I saw that people were pissed off at me before the game. So I went out with warm-ups with a toothpick in my mouth. Going through warm-ups with a toothpick. Walked up to their student section, which was... Nobody was there. Students were studying. And there was, like, maybe a handful of guys that were yelling at me or, or saying something to me and it made complete sense it's like yes yeah, yeah you're there are five people in your student section who actually follow the team like diehard fans because nobody gives a shit about your basketball team or your arena and it was hilarious because we won that game in overtime and overtime we had like a barrage of threes and heartbreaking stuff and at the end of the game 
the loudest chant of the entire night was a go blue chant from the Michigan fans in the stands. Pretty much proving my point. I think I even made a point to reference that after the fact to the media. Want to get that quote out there. And I look back and it honestly, it makes me, you know, regret that I didn't play the villain more, the white guy villain a la the Duke playbook. It would have been so much fun. But I don't know. I don't think I could have kept up that charade all season. But you know, I look back and think about what if I could answer those interview questions honestly. Especially in today's world where things can get out even quicker than they were when I was playing in college. I don't know. That would have been fun. I always loved the interviews. I always loved talking to the media. So I'm doing a freaking podcast. Okay, I like to hear myself talk. So that would have been that would have been a lot of fun to do. But you can only play what if games so much. All right, next question. What is the all-time best Michigan lineup? Easy. Howard, the five. Weber at the four. Rice at the three. Crawford and Rose playing guard. Boom, done. Next question. I played D2 ball at Saginaw Valley in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I thought our workout, practice, study hall schedule was insane. In and out of season. Was wondering what it was like with JB at the D1 level. Hashtag Q for Scoop. Q for Stoop. Yeah, it's pretty insane. I mean, I have a lot of regrets with my development as a player and, and like working out, but you know, I was so overwhelmed with so many things. I didn't know how to handle all of it, like the schedule and the demands and you know, there's a responsibility as like the oldest player on the team from junior year on. Stuff like that. So yeah, it was hectic. But eventually, you know, junior and senior year, I got out of study halls completely. You know, my grades were good enough. You know, nobody was checking my classes, so you know, I can skip the unimportant classes and pass just fine with still skipping them. I mean, I can skip a class on volcanoes every once every other Friday. I mean, that's not a big deal. Trust me. So yeah, it was hectic, but I definitely learned how to deal with it my junior and senior year. That's for sure. You have to, or you're going to go freaking crazy. Next question. How did you celebrate getting verified on Twitter? Probably just like a boost of adrenaline. Maybe told Courtney, hey, I got verified. She got wide-eyed, said it was cool. And then I think I like sent out a tweet being like fake cocky. And that was about it. Maybe some typical beers. You know, the usual stuff. Who is going to be the first team to beat Michigan? How do they do it? I don't know. I don't know the teams well enough to really know. You know, I could talk about the matchups. Listen, you can get a certain matchup on a certain day. All right. Michigan beats this team nine times out of ten. And this one day is just a bad day. You know, it's going to be one of those days where their offense isn't, they're not hitting threes. And really not hitting their shots. And their defense, for whatever reason, you know, just can't match up with certain players or certain guys. It could be any random ass team. It could be one of the next games where they're supposed to win by 15 or 20, all right? Who knows? But there, there's a matchup out there. 
and, and we'll be able to see it. Hopefully I'll be able to watch these freaking games and, and analyze it better, but there'll be somebody out there who matches up well with Michigan, watches the film, knows how to stop them on, you know, make them stagnant on offense and then attack their defense in the right ways, but honestly I have no idea who it is. I mean, I don't know, man. Some things you just can't game plan for. You think North Carolina game plan for Michigan to hit 50% of the threes? I shoot like 36, 37% from three or something this year. It's going to be randomness, and I have no idea who they're going to lose to, but it's going to be some type of crisis, and then we'll overanalyze it, and it'll be a bunch of fun. All right, last three questions. Favorite game memory? What else did you enjoy about University of Michigan? There's a lot of game memories. Um, I liked to dunk the ball and hit threes, so those were fun memories. One of my favorite memories is beating Michigan or beating Michigan State at Michigan State. And then the real fun began when we got home and we went to Skeeps. And the game highlights kept replaying on this projector on this wall, huge wall in the bar. And we were sitting there, people were just like looking at us, looking at the screen. It was like, yes, I know. I do play basketball. I know that's surprising, but that is me right there hitting that shot over Draymond. I think I got a few free drinks. I mean, I'm not sure I paid for a drink that night. So yeah, that that was a that was a lot of fun. There wasn't another time where we got to win a big game and celebrate right after. Uh, not even in the tournament. Couldn't even celebrate losing a senior year after Ohio in the tournament. I couldn't even wash away our pain. We <laughs> he still tried to put a curfew on us. Then we're like, get the hell out of here. But yeah, that was that was one of my favorite memories, just because we get to immediately celebrate it in a bar with the students in the atmosphere that you picture for your entire life. And we got to do it one time. Last two questions. What is your favorite video game? Call of Duty. Easy. I could play Call of Duty all day. FIFA is a close second. Last one. What is your opinion on the current state of basketball, three-point positionless defense-wise? I think it's incredible. I just watched a game between the Lakers and the Celtics from the finals in... 80-something. I don't know what it was. It was a mind-boggling game. Okay, They dribbled up. Henderson, the point guard for the Celtics, dribbled up. He stopped three feet inside the three-point line. Magic Johnson stood at the free-throw line. And then four Celtics just ran around the block or other like around below that area, just inside the paint, trying to find some position that they weren't going to get because there's zero spacing. Then they just post up, and it's just boring as shit. Don't get me wrong, those guys are pretty good. James Worthy gave it to Bird that game. He was a freak. But that stuff was, I don't I don't understand. People that talk about that era, they don't go back and watch the games. Go back and watch the games. And talk to me about spacing. You want to say it's too spaced out? There was no spacing back then. You're just running in within the same 30-foot circle. Less than that. How is that fun, exciting basketball? Yeah, they show the highlights of Magic Johnson on the fast break. This dude dribbled like he was Bob Cousy. He dribbled his back. He couldn't. He had no handles. It's very confusing. So I love. I think it's. A, there's teams that go a little crazy with the three point shot. But that's how you have to be. I mean, the math backs it up. Like shoot inside the paint, and attack the basket. And the spacing is there because 
The skill is there. There's never been more skill. Watch that game, an 80s game versus Lakers and Celtics, okay? The, the peak of that era. They could not shoot or dribble like the eighth guy on a team now. Let me rephrase. Some of them can shoot like that. Bird could obviously shoot like that. Magic couldn't shoot like that. Jesus, you could guard him. You could leave him at the free throw line. All right? Most of those guys. The skills now are incredible. And the game is the way it is because of these skills have been increasing over and over. We talk about, oh, the game is more athletic. No, man. These guys are way more skilled. So it's you have to honor those guys at the three-point line. And then the game opens up, and then that's how you get more dunks and layups because it's hard to it's harder to guard these guys than it was back then. We don't appreciate that enough. All we talk about is the style. We need to appreciate more of the guys and the skills of today. Top to bottom. It's never been better. And it only appears to be getting better slowly. So yeah, that's my two cents. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening.